Today's show debuts on December 7th, 2018, a day that will live in infamy as the day we chose this garbage scow of a film to mark the 77th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. I am truly sorry. This maybe was my idea, and it would constitute audience abuse if only state and federal law had caught up to the fast-paced hazards of modern life. Since at the time of this airing, audience abuse is not prosecutable, I can only stand by this decision with both middle fingers raised. History will not be kind to me, I'm sure. It is also well beneath my dignity to walk anyone through the day the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor, but suffice to say, this movie sets itself within the context of Melrose Place and is an offense to the senses. It is no spoiler alert to say that not even Adam could find much to redeem it. Although, now that I think about it, he does have a Ben Affleck throw pillow on the fold-out couch in the basement his wife refers to as Adam's bed, so maybe he was quietly seething. Who knows? Who cares? I'm going to take this time instead to give you some behind-the-scenes glimpses of the whole Friendly Fire operation as a Hanukkah present, mostly because Hanukkah does not require children to be good to receive gifts. Did you know I introduced Adam and Ben? I met Adam when he was 19 or 20, and he would come to Long Winter's concerts and ask me to sign his report card. After a few years, when he'd brought me enough gifts that I bothered to learn his name, he started making a documentary about the Long Winters, and I talked to him adoringly about myself for hours. I remember him saying, John, stop saying I'm 19 or 20. I'm 29 years old. I'm a grown man. He really was adorable. I met Ben a few years later in New York, and he couldn't have been a day older than 14. If I remember correctly, he was wearing tennis whites and a straw boater, which was weird enough even before you add in that he was working as a PA on a film, where all the other crew members were in black Carhartts. I think maybe he brought me some coffee and he tried to show me his screenplay. I always mix him up with the other PA from that same period who wore a bowler hat and carried a shoeshine box. Anyway, Ben wanted to make a TV show where I drove across the country in a primer-colored Corvette and solved historical mysteries. And truth be told, he was almost as annoying as Adam, so I thought, if I put these two ding-dongs together, maybe they will combine their strengths and come up with an interesting film project, starring me, that might actually have a chance of being completed. So I brought them together, and they immediately hit it off and started playing with Legos or whatever young people do. It was much later when they came to me with their idea, which did not star me at all and was a complete embarrassment, namely a podcast where they talked about Star Trek. They were not asking for my blessing, they were far too gone by that point, but I did record a promo for their show where I told their potential audience that it was a bad idea and that they should all be embarrassed. That show, called Star Trek Embarrassment or something, was a hit, and both Ben and Adam immediately became big, swaggering podcast stars which is another way of saying that they had to beg their wives to take them seriously and stop making them sleep on the fold-out couch. I should say for the record that although Ben and Adam professionally identify as nerds, they do not personally identify themselves that way. Neither one has any Jean Grey figurines. Their dogs are not named Uhuru or Frodo, but have normal names like Spunky or Barf Poop or whatever people name their dogs. I don't own a dog. I do not believe either of them plays video games or Settlers of Catan, nor have they ever emailed Kevin Smith for life advice, nor do they read anime or cosplay, except for Ben, who eternally cosplays as a prep school assistant coach and world history teacher from 1950, which is why Ben gets along so well with Jesse Thorne, who dresses like the headmaster of that same prep school, who took part in LSD experiments during the war. 
No, they appear to be normals, snorks, regulars. And it is only when they take off their dockers at the end of the day that their Captain Picard underoos are visible. Well, eventually they did come to me with a project. Not one that would make me a big star where I drove across the country in a primer-colored Corvette, but this one, a podcast about war movies. And I relented because by that point they'd both grown on me and become actual friends whom I liked and admired and knew to have tremendous personal integrity and intelligence. Don't let them know I feel this way. So we started doing this show, and I want to stipulate that none of us are experts about anything. Not a single thing. We are just three dingbats who are doing this dumb thing. I know I talk about war stuff like I know about it, but that's just how I talk. If this show was about endocrinology, I would talk about it like I was the world expert because I am an old-fashioned asshole. Ben is an expert at being a hanky-clutching liberal snowflake, but beyond that, he doesn't appear to know anything about anything. And Adam just makes dick jokes and only gets excited when he's asked to identify an airplane. Please do not for one second imagine that we know what we are talking about or care when someone gets mad that we called a marine a soldier or got the logistics of German food wagons in World War I wrong. I'm sure there are some podcasts that get all that stuff right, and they are super boring, and they have no dick jokes, and you aren't listening to them, you're listening to this one. When the action is over and we look back, we understand both more and less. Today on Friendly Fire, Pearl Harbor. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's bullshit, but it's very, very good bullshit. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. <laughs> this movie we watched is also bullshit, but I don't think it's very good bullshit. John, this was your idea. Why did we do this? <laughs> well, let me explain. <laughs> let me explain. Explain yourself, young man. <laughs> this movie is called Pearl Harbor, and it is about a day... Which will live in infamy. <laughs> yeah, this day specifically, right? <laughs> the day, well, no, yesterday when we De- watched Decem- this movie. <laughs> December 7th, 2018. <laughs> um, uh, when this movie came out in the year, what, 2000? 2001. 2001. Um, I remember seeing the previews in the theaters. I remember seeing the previews in the theaters and my mom leaned over to me and said, now that's filmmaking. Really? Was she yeah. being sarcastic? No, she was really impressed. I mean, she she uh, her dad was in the Air Force and she lived in Hawaii for a bunch of her childhood and like planes coming in low over the over the terrain of Hawaii, like really meant a lot to her. I remember that that shot in in particular, the one where the the zeros are coming through that low verdant valley as yeah. they come around the backside and uh, on their way to Pearl. Um, seeing that in the theaters, it was an impressive shot. And, um, and even though it's CGI, it's like pretty good CGI, but I, I, uh, but then the violin started to swell and (laughs) for whatever reason, um, the guy from Goodwill hunting was on the screen all this time. And I was like, "Mm, this is not a movie that I want to see. Did you see the teaser trailer or the trailer? Because there, the teaser trailer I thought was one of the best 
trailers I've ever seen. It's the one that just has FDR dialogue, and it has that uh, a musical score cue from a place called Two Steps from Hell that makes uh, movie preview music. Mm. And it was few people have seen it because it was the the teaser was out for only a short time, but it was awesome. I did not see that. And it was just like vignettes, like like fade in, fade out of a bunch of these scenes. And yeah, I it's think that's chilling. what I saw. Yeah, I don't think that Ben Affleck was in what yeah. I saw. No, no, I saw the I saw the one that gave you a true picture of the film. <laughs> and I, <laughs> oh no, they gave too much away. This was a time when I was going to see movies all the time. I was writing film reviews for The Stranger periodically, and Sean Nelson, who was the film reviewer for The Stranger, or the film critic for The Stranger and I were in a band together. So we would go to movies all the time because Sean had to see every movie that was that was out. But we both agreed not to go see this because it seemed like, I mean, it didn't seem like, it clearly was a steaming pile. And <laughs> Sean didn't want to see it as a movie and I did not want to see it as a World War II person. Um, and Sean actually wrote a review for the stranger, a fairly long review of the film without having seen it. He said, <laughs> I did not see this movie, but let me give you let me give you an in-depth review of it. And he, you know, and he reviewed it, I'd say pretty well. I attempted that in a in a college class one time when I was asked to stand up and speak about something. Did not go over well. <laughs> well, you know, he was a professional film reviewer, so he but but you could that's the thing. You could tell from the preview everything that was going to happen in this movie. It was going to be Set during Pearl Harbor, but it was it was going to be a a, a a romantic story about some people who who accrue to themselves a bunch of historic accolades, a bunch of you know laurel wreaths because they are they're stealing valor from everyone around them, and it's a three hour movie that somehow also condenses. It's a three hour movie that can't actually have real people perform the real things that are actually in the history books as having been done. All that stuff has to just, you know, be Ben Affleck that's doing them. I mean, he's, he's the classic uh, Z-Lig here, right? He's, <laughs> he manages to hit every high point of, of, uh, of the first year of World War II. Can classic Z-Lig be Ben's call sign for this episode? The, the littlest Z-Lig? Yeah. So I did not see it, but I always felt, oh, not only did I not see it, but the movie Pearl Harbor was always the reference that I made when I was talking about an epically bad movie. I never saw Waterworld either, but I wouldn't use Waterworld as an example. I always used Pearl Harbor. But I felt bad because I'd never seen it, and now we were doing a war movie podcast, and I said, dudes, let's just do this together. <laughs> just, you know what? Maybe it's aged well. Maybe it's amazing. <laughs> I think it's instructive to talk about the time period that it came out and at what point in his career Michael Bay was, at what point in time this movie came out in comparison to a film like Titanic, which came out three years before it. I don't think... This film never telegraphed to me as a trailer that it was going to be so titanic -y. Michael Bay's Titanic is this what it was, should have been called. This was after, yeah, this was after The Rock and Armageddon. This was three years after Armageddon. This was the largest, this is the biggest financed Hollywood film ever at the time to be greenlit 
for a $150 million budget. He, Michael Bay was 35. Yeah. And by, and like at the absolute apex of his powers. Such as they are. Such as they are. Yeah. Ben, did you see this movie with your mom? Did you actually end up going to it? I don't remember who I saw it with. I, I do remember seeing it in theaters. Um, I think that I maybe wasn't as sophisticated of a film watcher when I first saw this movie. I don't remember thinking it was great, but I I remember, you know, thinking it was... A movie. You know, yeah, a movie. And right. uh, I've got three hours to kill. I, I don't think I'd seen it again since the movie theater. Me neither. So. And you saw it at the time, Adam? Yeah. I mean, this movie did great in the theaters. It, yeah. It made all its money back and then some by quite a lot. I think it earned like $450 million worldwide. I was into the Michael Bay oeuvre. I mean, for <laughs> for a time, you uh, could have you could have oof. no more fun than to go to the theater and see Bad Boys. Like that was a fun ass movie. You could yeah. have a lot more. I mean, fun. it was no Bad Boys Two. Bad Boys Two <laughs> also movie, yeah. really fun. Uh, you could have a lot more fun than going to see Pearl Harbor in the movie theater. Yeah, almost anything. Sitting out in front of the movie theater would have been more fun. Yeah, it really it really felt disappointing. Disappointing in a different way because there's the way you feel disappointed when you see this movie and are like, oh, well, that didn't pay off what I had hoped. I had hoped it would be better. <laughs> I, had, I had hoped it would be at least Titanic at Pearl Harbor. But then you, I was disappointed specifically in that I thought Michael Bay was better than this. I was disappointed in the following way. And I don't know, you know, I have an ambivalent relationship to movies in general even good ones sure. right you guys love it's what makes you such a great co-host for I'm this show s- i'm such a fun guy <laughs> it's what makes me such a good boyfriend too uh-huh. you want to go to the movies you know <laughs> i'm ambivalent about yes let honey. me tell you what's wrong with going to the movies i know you are sweetheart <laughs> well actually <laughs> here's your here's your glass of milk half a glass of milk so you don't spill but from the from the opening I had that feeling that you get when you're watching something so terrible that you have to kind of avert your eyes. And I was, I was, you know, like like some people kind of cover their eyes at horror movies because they they they're just like, oh, I just don't want to see the 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 monster or the blood. I actually had my hands up in that same way because it was such a trope salad from the from the opening credits. Those little boys playing in the in the barnyard just the way it was filmed the 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 wooden dialogue between those two little kids this like the absolute stupidity of starting a war movie uh, with the two little kids in 1925 who are like one day I'll be a pilot no I'm your best friend <laughs> like there's a there's a comic strip in the newspaper called Red and Rover do you know Red and Rover do you guys not l- read the comics page as a millennium, I don't receive a newspaper oh, right. at my at my house. But well, I also um, lived in in New York for the last fifteen years, where the only newspaper worth receiving does not have a comic section. You talk about the Village Voice. There's absolutely a comic section in the Village Voice. <laughs> uh, the comics page for those the of Gray you- Lady, the Village Voice, <laughs> our nation's paper of record, the New York Post, all the porno ads that are fit to print. <laughs> As someone who grew up reading the newspaper and reading the comics page, you know, you have strong feelings about different comic strips, too. 
Um, oh, or yeah. At least I do. I was always a Calvin and Hobbesman. Oh, sure, of course. My my daughter is now trying to learn Calvin and Hobbes, but the references are fairly sophisticated. Um, uh, our our pod daddy Jesse Thorne has recently introduced his daughter to Calvin and Hobbes. That is, uh, you know, it's. I'm finding that it, it makes a lot of references to um, Hegel, and so it's very <laughs> difficult to uh, to to really like appreciate as an eight year old. <laughs> but anyway, there's a comic strip called Red and Rover, which is written by Brian Bassett, who's a local Seattle, he's an editorial cartoonist for the Seattle Times, I think. And he had, for a long time, a comic strip called Adam at Home, since the mid-80s, where it was a guy at home. You know, it was just a comic strip. It was just something that inoffensive. But starting in 2000, he had a new comic strip, which came from a 100% baby boomer perspective where a little kid and his dog did baby boomer things. You know, uh, a little little kid, it was set in the late 50s or early 60s, and it was just baby boomer pandering of the worst order. <laughs> and so when I would open the comics page, I love the comics. I would have to shield my eyes from Red and Rover. <laughs> it appalled me so much. It was just so, it was, the, it was the kind of treacle that was so cynical. And this movie, from the go, offered no new take on anything. You know, it's interesting that for a film with a runtime of three hours that the decision would be made to take such a shortcut in like the shortcut to emotion, the shortcut to substance that happens in this first scene, especially with respect to the uh, the William Fitchner character, the dad character, like the, you don't want to know what war is really like. Don't ever call me a, a German. Like there's a way to get to the emotional core of what war is without doing it like this. And there's time to do it. And that's one of the tragedies of it. Like he had all the time he needed. So much time. To make that case. <laughs> yeah, that, that dad, he comes on screen as the abusive dad that's supposed to set us up to care about that little boy. Yeah. And then he yeah, and like, and then we're supposed to pity the dad, yeah. despite the fact that he's just hauled off on his fucking nine-year-old son. Just, just beat his kid, and then has a completely historically inaccurate little breakdown in front of his son and his son's friend, and about, in front of his historically inaccurate crop dusting plane. Right. Which also, also we'll get to all the pedantry later, but, but stay tuned after the credits for forty minutes of pedantry. But but all of a sudden he has PTSD and and we get a whole we get a, like a thirty second lesson about World War One. You're absolutely right. It was like you know stretch it out. But he needed he Michael Bay needed two hours to show us basically every single minute of the love triangle that this movie's really about. Yeah. And so all this war stuff it was a real inconvenience to him <laughs> because he wanted to he really wanted to make like a. Um, a romantic drama. Not it's not a comedy at all. He wanted to make Pride and Prejudice. It really felt like he made this movie at James Cameron to be like, see, like I should be in the conversation too. It makes me wonder if Titanic didn't exist, what this movie would have been. It wouldn't have been. I really think that there is a good movie in here somewhere that we don't see. Yeah, it's forty minutes long. There's a good forty minute long movie in the in this. If you started this film at the Pearl Harbor attack, I think this film is 60% better 
Well, and I think you would call it Doolittle's Raiders, right? Because the fun of the movie is all in the is all in the Doolittle raid. And if you if you you're right, if you had made an hour and fifteen minute long movie that starts at Pearl Harbor, and then there's you, we spend more time with the Doolittle Raiders, and it's less in soft focus. There are fewer shots at the magic hour. <laughs> Which everything in this movie is filmed at the Magic Hour. It must have taken Michael, that's like Michael Bay's signature look. Like he uh, he only shoots at the Magic Hour. It's gorgeous. Well, and, but it's gorgeous. Except every shot is like it's like a U two video. People are walking in slow motion across a tarmac. Everybody's perfectly fanned out, so you can see every single person's face. It's very uh, late nineties, early two thousands music video aesthetic. It is. Is uh, kind of where Michael Bay's pedigree is from, right? Yeah. But that's two whole extra hours that we labored through in order to watch that hour-long, halfway decent movie. You read any interviews with Michael Bay about this, and he talks about how misunderstood what he was trying to do was with this love triangle. The way he describes it is that he was trying to make a movie of the time like the from here to eternity ification of that first third is was his point and he was like you guys just we didn't. went so far as to even follow the Hayes code right he was like you guys just didn't even get it and the people who do get it really got what I was trying to do that is a really strange decision to make for a guy with this kind of budget to like swing that hard at a way of talking and looking. I can't imagine that that is anything but a retcon, though. Because, because like, they also pushed really hard for it to have a hard R, and the yeah. studio balked at that. And, like, amidst all that, they also decided that nobody would smoke in the movie. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, nobody pulls on a cigarette one single time in this movie that's set in the 40s. Like, very hard to <laughs> to imagine that that's the mindset uh, that he's bringing, you know, to his accurate, accurate, period appropriate film. I mean, it's insane Be- because From Here to Eternity exists and is 100 times better than this. <laughs> and so that even if that is a retcon, I think the only word you can use to describe it is callow. He's a 35-year-old trying to tell us about the 40s, and he's wrong. He's just wrong at every step of the way. This isn't what the 40s were like. That's not what people looked like. That's not how they talked. It's not how they acted. And so he's, it's like a costume drama, basically, except a, it's, like a, it's like a costume drama, except this movie was made when most of those people were still alive. And we're there to say, like, what? Those, that's, it's not just a question of, like, those shoes are wrong. It's a something fundamental, like nobody would act that way. Set your movie somewhere else. You know, take your dumb, callow film and put it somewhere where it belongs, which is, I don't know where this movie belongs. I mean, <laughs> frankly, yeah. it belongs in a, in a Christian church somewhere because it's not, a, it's not a movie about Pearl Harbor. It's not a movie about World War II. I mean, all those guys sitting around the table with Roosevelt, all those um, admirals and generals, it, when you look at the, the casting, those are 
all famous, famous men, right? Spruance and all these guys that, that did real things in war. They're never introduced. We have no idea who they are. They're just a bunch of old white guys sitting around a table. And they all are just there to listen to Roosevelt lecture them or whatever. And and it's like... I thought it was pretty cool that they got Jiminy Glick to play Roosevelt, though. <laughs> <laughs> you can barely recognize Martin Short over on that, on that Prosthetic. <laughs> Have you? Do you ever like steam baths? It's so awful to, to imagine that he in his mind is like, well, oh, you know... Everybody will know that that's uh, Admiral Nimitz, uh, but his whole job in this movie is just to sit there and have Roosevelt lecture him. Yeah, yeah and go. I don't know if we can attack the Japanese. Yeah, what do you mean? We're 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 afraid to fight those, this war. All these guys that were just like fighting the shit out of this war, and also it's weird throughout the movie. There are so many heroes that knew the attack was coming, and we see it over and over. We see. We see Dan Aykroyd. He knows something's happening. We see the admiral in charge of Pearl. Like, he knows something is happening. Everybody knows. Roosevelt knows something's happening. They all know something's happening. And yet, still, it's a big surprise. I really like Cameo Aykroyd in anything, and I like him in this movie. Cameo Aykroyd. Did you? Interesting that you brought up uh, Dan Aykroyd, because I have uh, a quibble from the uh, folks in the goof section on IMDb. Do you guys want to hear it? I would like to hear, Ben, I would like to hear six quibbles in this episode. Line them up. (laughs) (laughs) There there is no shortage. Uh, The internet pedants have created the longest website page in internet history in the goof section on IMDb about this film. But in the scene in the cryptography office, as Dan Aykroyd mutters about the Japanese flooding the Pacific with radio traffic, the ticker tape coded messages are printed out in Helvetica, a font not designed until the 1950s. That's a great one, Ben. Great job. That really is good. That really is good. Helvetica. Um, I like Aykroyd. I like Aykroyd because you can, um, even now, when presumably he's not on cocaine anymore, you can see that cocaine sweatiness about him, that kind of like, um, he's always perspiring, even when no one else in the scene is. It's like, he feels like he's in JFK, like he's bringing that kind of like crank energy to it, <laughs> which is really fun. It's true. The big crank energy. And this is kind of like the JFKification of Pearl Harbor. I think we've seen a lot of movies which make a choice of if I'm not going to get the 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 facts truthful, I'm at least going to go for the emotional truth. And what's the biggest thing that sucks about this film is that this this film is incapable of grasping what emotional truth is, even. Yeah, because I mean, of speaking of cocaine, it's Michael Bay and Jerry Bruckheimer <laughs> teaming up to make a, <laughs> a movie. I mean. <laughs> Uh, it was written yeah. by Randall Wallace, and I think that's a major reason why. I blame Randall yeah. Wallace more than I blame Michael Bay. Yeah, Randall Wallace, famously of Braveheart, and uh, currently working on the the hotly anticipated sequel to The Passion of the Christ for Mel Gibson. Whoa, two passion, two Christ? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to die I, of heart, a heart attack. I believe it is literally called The Passion of the Christ, colon, Resurrection. 
unbelievable. <laughs> this time, he means war. <laughs> if you thought what he did to the money changers was bad, <laughs> cut to him just emptying like round after round of belt fed ammo. <laughs> Well, if you look at if you look at his whole uh, oeuvre, uh-huh. as you would say, um, then you, and then you realize as a screenwriter, he's he also is a devout Christian and is trying to he's trying to promulgate his worldview in his films, and you stack them up all next to each other, and it becomes one hundred percent obvious. Like it's not, yeah, the movies have no sex in them, or if there is. It's incredibly chaste. Like this is a movie that that is, at, at, in a, from here to eternity sense, all about sex, right? Uh, sex is like the the his movie, the one that has nothing to do with Pearl Harbor, hinges on this love triangle, and yet we never see any. I mean, the sexiest thing in this movie is when she answers the door in that chemise. Nobody and even makes out in the waves. They don't make out in the waves. Uh, from here to eternity had a lot of sex, you know, yeah. sexual energy, sexual tension at the implicate. And this is Hayes code movie. The implication of, of lots of crazy, sweaty, angry sex. And this movie, it's like, are these people capable of having sex? Like, I don't believe <laughs> that anyone in this movie has genitalia. Yeah. <laughs> And that's insane to make two hours to make a two hour long sex movie where I mean, let me let me put this to you guys. Did she ever have sex with Ben Affleck? I don't think so. They went into they started to go into the hotel. Mm -hmm. This is after they'd been dating for what weeks, months. He turns around in the lobby and he's like, I don't want to do this. It's not right. And takes her back outside like I don't want to, you know, like he doesn't go as far as to say, like, I I want to I want us to stay virgins. But and this is a guy who all who who just recently like was the hero, the American hero of the Battle of Britain. He's never, never kissed a girl, or no, I guess he was about to go. Speaking of uh, being a hero of the Battle of Britain, another quibble is that uh, it was actually illegal for enlist uh, people in the American military to go serve with the British. The American Eagle Squadron uh, existed, but. People had to like sneak into the UK to become members of it, and if he had come back, he would have been court-martialed. Well, not to mention the fact that I think this that scene takes place in early 1941. Um, right, which uh, I guess the Battle of Britain was over by then, right? I mean the the hot times. There was still there was still plenty of Battle of Britain going on, but there is a very limited like there is a historically documented number of American pilots that participated in that uh, in the entirety of that event. Like there are like seven. Um, I think there were there were a couple of hundred people that that uh, were in the in the game, but like seven famous seven pilots that could have possibly done what Ben Affleck is, is depicted doing. And like seven, we know that we know all their names and only something like two of them survived the war. So that's just one. I mean, I hate to be internet pedant. No, I don't. 
<laughs> but like, we thought we we thought we started this podcast to dunk on internet pedants, and what we what we find is that we've become what we set out to destroy. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's just insane. Like the only thing he didn't, the only thing Ben Affleck didn't do was shake Hitler's hand in this movie. You know. <laughs> Like, oh, he fought the Battle of Britain. Oh, and then he was rescued by the Free French. And oh, then he somehow made it back, presumably through Portugal. But when he made it back to um, to the United States, he somehow was unable to send a telegram to Hawaii and instead yeah. had to, what, take a train or <laughs> or even fly a plane all the way across the United you can't States? can't take Took a train from the mainland United States to Hawaii, John. Even That's I true. know that. That's true. What about a uh, well, the floating Japanese train? bombed out all the tracks by that point. <laughs> I've got a weird piece of headcanon for this scene in that uh so there's a there's a moment they emphasize here which is like Evelyn is grieving for her dead Rafe and many weeks later she receives a bundle of letters. Mhm. Unclear if she ever opens those because later we see that she puts them into a drawer because she has in her heart put those feelings in her heart drawer <laughs> so, and that, still, so, that, so that she can get with Danny. They're still tied in a shoelace or something at that point. Did any of those letters say, hey, I'm alive and I'm gonna <laughs> like, like, was that a huge mistake? Because I think you could make the case that one of those letters said, I'm alive. <laughs> I'm sure that's not a period accurate mistake, you know. If you Nothing like, is period accurate in this movie. But you can't use a period inaccuracy to explain away why she didn't know. <laughs> if so you, the movie if can if, do it and I can't. If I was told Adam was dead and then a day later I received an email from him like, Hey, uh, this is the art for the new friendly fire t shirt, what do you think? I'd be like I'd be like, I can't read it. I, the feelings are too fresh. <laughs> and I would set I would uh, I would send to junk mail and uh I don't know, attempt to marry his wife in this metaphor uh, oh, no, 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 that's you. me that's me <laughs> i was just trying to do the metaphor and I, I, I don't actually want to marry your wife i have too much respect for you and her yeah. affleck gets that scene that we got in fury which is like here's your plane hose out all the blood and brains yeah or in or in this case raspberry jam raspberry jam sprayed through a toothpaste tube this is another this is another shortcut, right? Like we need these scenes for Affleck's character to be seen as a hero. He can't stick behind. He has to he has to have volunteered. We need to see Spitfires in this movie. We do except when Affleck reappears, A, he has not received a battlefield promotion despite having shot down whatever seven German planes. Yeah. So he is not a captain. He's still a buck lieutenant like like everybody else in the movie. He brags about ace status, though. But other than bragging about ace status, he has no, like, hardness to him. He's not any deeper or any cooler or any more scarred than all of these, all his little pals. Like, he is unchanged by having fought uh, and watched all his friends die in the Battle of Britain. He brings no gravitas. There is no gravitas, and he's also like so flat when it comes to like the the reveal that his best friend and his and his girlfriend got together in his in his absence. Like he like the idea that he couldn't wrap his mind around everybody thought he was dead, and therefore 
you know, they made decisions based on that knowledge is is insane. Like every time somebody says that to him, he just like turns wooden and it like bounces back off of him. You don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like, but I like the logic of the situation is is very simple and it's he's presented as not even being able to understand that. It's hard to blame any actor in this film for their dialogue. No, yeah, you're right. But there's nothing going on in his eyes either. It's it, it felt like Ben Affleck didn't know that he's not this guy, and so anytime something bad happened to this guy, Ben Affleck is like personally upset about it. <laughs> I was stunned that Michael Bay, in all of his three hours, did not find a way to make Ben Affleck's homecoming or return to the scene like it's almost invisible to us. Like he shows up as a shadow against a wall Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden he's like, Hey, what's up? I'm back. Okay. Everything's cool. And all of the acting, like she does all the acting, uh, like I'm torn because I've been banging your friend. And then we're just right into some weird love triangle, triangle stuff. And where was the shot of him at the magic hour stepping down off a DC three with his bags and walking slowly across the tarmac where he resolves (laughs) out of the fog and, and his two love triangles are standing there on the tarmac with, with brooms or whatever, sweeping up nuts and bolts and they turn and there's like, where, where do we get that? Like that would have been so Michael Bay. And instead it's, it's like weirdly downplayed. This is the whole first act of the movie. Yeah. Uh, well, he wouldn't have gotten off of a DC three. Of course, he would have gotten off a, a C forty seven transport, oh which oh they used God. in the uh, in this film. You know, uh, that oh shit! You know that those are the same airplanes, right? <laughs> that the DC three and the C forty seven. C forty seven used clearly has a radar dome mounted in the nose. C forty sevens of this type did not exist in that time frame. Another moment of pedantry. Slid it in. Done. Nice one. <laughs> Boom. For the record, my dad flew those airplanes in World War two. C-47. One of the most beautiful planes ever. And Just he a always, great plane. He always called them DC-3s. <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think it's pretty cool that they named them after clothespins. <laughs> little filmmaking joke for Adam. <laughs> you, you got my little uh, blip laugh. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's a, that is what I earned. <laughs> Adam, Adam was explaining to me uh, that ever since he started doing this, sh- or started podcasting with you, Ben, he had to learn to laugh out loud. Because the only way he's ever expressed uh, that he was having fun or or got a joke was just to smile more broadly. Yeah, and I and, I've, and I realized it's true. Adam's a big smiler, but smiling does not work in podcasting. No, it really yeah, doesn't. It's, a, it's an not it's a an audio medium. medium. Yeah. So he's had he's had to develop all these uh, laugh ticks like and, <laughs> and and that one he just did. <laughs> Yeah, it's like he's it's like he's speaking uh, not his first language when he laughs out loud. <laughs> you guys are fucking assholes. <laughs> a good friend of mine texted me after uh, this is going to come out way into the future, but the last couple episodes that come out have not been good Adam episodes, and mm. I think we both know that. Mm. He's like, "Wow, they are really hammering you on this show lately. <laughs> How do you feel about that?" Like that's great. It, this is my it's setting up my redemption story for later. That's right. <laughs> I haven't stepped off the DC three yet. Did you respond by going like this? <laughs> uh. <laughs> C 
listen to Ben's and my like big masculine laughs. Oh yeah, big masculine <laughs> laugh. Pride of the Pacific. This film, unlike many depicting World War II, actually feels like it gives even feeling and backstory to a Japanese enemy here. We're cutting fairly often back and forth between the motivations of the Japanese military and the ignorance of the American intelligence. Strong community. disagree. I feel like yeah? the, I feel like they're total cardboard cutouts of Japanese enemy. Their entire motivation is the Americans have cut off our oil supply. That's the last we ever hear of it. And then the rest of the time they're standing in front of like weird models plotting. It's just they're all they're doing is planning. I'm, no one smiles. No one twinkles. I'm not making the case for the accuracy or the sub substance of it. I'm making the case for their being, being some balance between the depiction. I thought it was respectful. It's super inaccurate, but it's it's not like... It's not just like a racist caricature. That's the 2001-ness of it, I think. I yeah. mean, it like we also see Cuba Gooding Jr. appear in the movie early on. And when Cuba Gooding Jr. appears, my first thought was, what is Cuba Gooding Jr. doing here? Like having a complete, like a star turn, but that is also really... It's a, a labored attempt to thread him into the to the main plot when he when he visits uh, her as a nurse. It's like I see where and, and as soon as he arrives, it only takes 30 seconds to realize, oh, it's Doris Miller, like the famous black cook who manned a machine gun and was awarded the Navy Cross during Pearl Harbor. Like this is a this is a historic guy. He became a huge um, recruiting tool during the war. He was like the first African-American hero of World War II. It's an actual person. And as soon as you see Cuba Gooding Jr. there and realize he's a cook, you go, oh, oh shit, it's Doris Miller. Like how, this is almost, except for Roosevelt and his cabinet, almost the only person who is a historical figure that's actually allowed to do what he did during the war and be a, be a real person. But Michael Bay is trying to, trying to fit him in to make it so that, because he wants to have this scene in his movie, but it's the only one of its kind, right? There's no other, we see no other actual people come on the screen and do a thing that they actually did. And he's I got- I thought it was not a terrible way to get onto the deck of those ships though. I mean, otherwise- the eyes of this character. Right, like otherwise the entire attack comes from the perspective of guys who are like sleeping one off in the back of a convertible on the beach and then they wake up and discover Pearl Harbor is happening. Again, total from here to eternity moment. But that right. I think that is a total failure of the movie, I think. Like the first time we ever see a sailor is when the ships start getting like there's that scene right before the bombers where we pan through under the deck of the Arizona and we see all the sailors in their bunks. That is like vintage Bruckheimer though. Like anytime there's a car chase, you always have to cut to the lady pushing the yeah. pushing the yeah. pram across the street. Yep. That's like that's like <laughs> ten cuts away from getting run through by the cars, but but what we're establishing <laughs> that the wheelchair basketball team is out and about, you know. <laughs> 
But that's I just a- got to move this plate glass window back and forth across the street. I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> hey, listen, it's it's just a coincidence that everybody showed up to the farmer's market to sell melons today, but that's what we're all selling. I'm just carrying 15 cherry pies up this staircase. <laughs> He is the master of this. Yeah. yeah. Like, you could also you could almost call that the Michael Bay shot more than the rising, rotating dolly around your main character. Like that's that's so perfect. It's so it's so Bay. <laughs> Bay got me like Yeah, Bay, Bay got me like this exploded pane of glass. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked the Dory Miller character and I thought that of all of the terrible lines of dialogue in this film when he finds his captain and shoves the rag in his gut wound and tells him like everyone is where they need to be you trained us well like I didn't feel much throughout the film but like I really felt something in that scene, and I think that is a fucking testament to his ability to to deliver a pretty saccharine line of dialogue in a moment where it was needed. Like, I really felt something in that scene, and it goes by very fast, but I thought he was good, and he was good in that moment especially. I felt something in that scene too, and it was vomit rising up in the back of my throat. Uh, it was so awful. that was, He's just like, oh, captain, my captain. And the violins, and you're like, no, 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 no. You reject. I reject. This. I yeah. reject it. I rejected that that attempt to pull on our heartstrings after, like, pull on our heartstrings in a different way, where there's nothing else like it in the movie. There's no setup for it. I mean, we see we see five seconds of those two interacting, like one minute before. And it's meant to set up an entire relationship that we should care about. And then we get this like, there are bombs dropping on the deck, but he has time to kneel down and pet his captain's hair and say, even though in our relationship in 1941, I would not have been allowed to touch you at all. I'm going to, you know, like we're going to have this caring moment. And then back to the big explosions. I agree with you on one part of your argument, which is the musical score to this film is one of the things that kneecaps the film along with the dialogue. Like Hans Zimmer is a fucking titan and he does great scores in this era and even now. And I love his work. I think it's terrible in this movie. And I think it takes you along with the dialogue out of connecting at all with these characters. It's too, it's too present from moment one, the, the use of the score in this movie is, I think, in the Nuremberg trials of Michael Bay. That, <laughs> that is, you know, state's evidence number one that he should be in prison. Yeah. He should be in film prison. <laughs> and he should be making Happy Gilmore movies because it is like so, so bad. Not era appropriate, not. It's uh, Braveheart music. Yeah, another uh, element that really undercuts that claim that we're trying to make the movie of that time. Right. Here in our time. We hear one scene where there's jazz music playing and it's, you know, and it's filmed like a music video. Yeah, that that dolly through the the legs being flipped up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's so great. It's a scene right out of Peggy Sue Got Married. Yeah. And then the rest of the time, it's this like treacle strings. 
lot of interesting casting in this film. Michael Shannon was a guy that I was surprised to see. I did not remember him being in this film. He has a fun part. Did you like uh, you like the Michael Shannon, Ben? I liked Michael Shannon. I I didn't really have any problems with the casting generally. I mean, I, I liked I yes. liked seeing all of I liked seeing all these people. I just felt like you know you don't you don't take advantage of having an Alec Baldwin or a Michael Shannon in your film by giving them dialogue this shitty. And it's a shame, you know, like if you're, if you're an actor considering projects and you see the list of people that have already signed on to this movie, you're going to be like, fuck yes. Like, where do I sign? You know, that's right. Dan Aykroyd's in this movie. I'm in. But then when you, uh, you know, when you receive your sides, you got to be a little bit, I don't know. Michael Shannon tells a really funny story about his audition for this film in that they just had him, uh, improv. Like there wasn't really a script. You can tell at the, at the moment that he was there, and they were like, "Hey, just just run some lines. Tell me how you would act in this kind of scene." And he did it, <laughs> and and they and they hired him. And he was like, when he finally did get the script, he was like, "Oh no, these are my lines." Yeah, I mean, they could they, his character is named Goose, but they could have just as easily named him Booger. Yeah. You know, he's just like, brr. I mean, Tom Sizemore is in this movie, and he appears to be acting in a completely different movie, which is an actual World War II movie. That's a Tom Sizemore thing, though. It really is. And I'm sure he was full of cocaine. Yeah. And uh, and heroin, probably. Tom Sizemore had the right energy. He like, did. Like, if everyone acted with his kind of energy in this film, it's a totally different deal. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, given who was directing and who was producing this film and uh, the fact that Sizemore is in the cast, there's probably just a goblet of cocaine on the craft services table, right? But I I object, well, pretty much to everything you say, Adam, but in this uh, particular (laughs) instance... Can you be more specific, please? (laughs) I object to the idea that the casting is good. Nobody looks like they're from World War II. They all look like they're from, um, from Melrose Place. Um, everybody's too quaffed, too skinny. Nobody's smoking. Nobody's that guy nobody's... that plays Nimitz. Like I can only picture wearing like a guayabera and flip flops. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is great casting for a show on the WB, <laughs> but it is a terrible casting for a World War II movie that's meant to be anything other than a three-hour-long episode of the WB. I feel like Josh Hartnett showed up with his like his haircut and he's like do I need to do anything with this and he points at his head and they're like no you're good so that's great just just sort of a feathered surfer thing wear this <laughs> super you're cute good. yeah I think Ben Affleck made very radical choices with his hat in a way that nobody else was really doing in this movie what did you think of that John as a, as a man who is looking very carefully at the way an army guy in a movie wears a hat well this particular style of hat what what the pilots did in World War II is they had normal officer hats, like normal officers, which were sort of stiff and and wide, circular-shaped officer hats. But what they discovered early on was that they couldn't put their headphones on when they were in their airplanes over the top of the hat. Now, why they didn't just universally wear those flat caps or no hat, I don't know but they wanted to be able to put their earphones on. So they went inside the hat and they took out the thick cardboard that made the hats stand stiffly. 
Yeah, there's like a ring in there that keeps them keeps them taut. Right, and they took those out, and and so all of a sudden we see these sort of floppy, infinitely cooler officer hats. And one thing I've always wondered is why Ralph Lauren has never, in all of his weird militaria, all the <laughs> all the fashion people of the '90s and 2000s who were co-opting like military outfits, never just made one of those. Kind of, we, we see so many Irish newsboy caps, but we never see a cool World War II pilot hat as a as a modern affectation. I think I would wear one. I mean, you know, <laughs> if it had the Ralph Lauren logo or maybe like Hermes. You hear that, Ralph? You sold one. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Affleck has got that hat on and you can't tell whether he's the chef from the Muppets or whether... I mean, whether he's a, a major league baseball player or it's like, got this super, super choicey tilt to it down over his eyes. You know what? Don't hold him to a standard you didn't hold Sinatra to in Von Ryan's Express, man. Listen, I don't I, even. I'm not sure I didn't hold Sinatra to that standard at Von Ryan's Express. <laughs> I'm going to defend Affleck in this movie. I'm going to defend all these actors in this movie. This is not their fault. Adam, you are going to die on the hill of Pearl Harbor? <laughs> no, I'm not dying on the hill of the film. I'm I'm defending the actors here. This is a this is a Randall Wallace problem. Defending Affleck. That should be that should be Adam's autobiography. I think in 2001, if you could be anyone in Hollywood at at any moment in your career, with like the the kind of potential that you would want to have, would you want to be anyone besides Ben Affleck? Like if you could not tell the future, if you could if you could only pick one, I feel like in two thousand one he has got biggest actor in the world potential, and he fucked up. He picked the wrong movie. This is a career ruining choice he made, <laughs> and it sucks. His partner in crime picked the Born, the first Born movie. Yeah. I wondered and, if they had had thought about Affleck and Matt Damon as the two leads in this. They did, and Gwyneth Paltrow as the Kate Beckinsale part. But no, uh, really? but they both uh, Matt Damon was unable to do it due to schedule, and I think Paltrow either turned it down or was also a schedule issue. But yeah, that was one of the combinations for this film. Really? Yeah, and Matt Damon is in the film as a as a gunner. On one of the battleships, really, in a quick, in a quick dolly move. He's no in kidding. It. I didn't notice that. Yeah. Uh, so is John McClane in the exterior hospital scene. Did you notice that? All of the uh, all of the injured guys are approaching the hospital, and Kate Beckinsale's uh, writing on their foreheads with a lipstick. The part that looks like a zombie film. Yeah. John, are you saying they comped John McClane from Die Hard into that scene? He's walking in the background. What? Compton? Look it up. Yeah. He's <laughs> That's in it. crazy. Look up Pearl Harbor movie John McClane. D- and there's digitally. then there's screen grabs. Yeah, he's digitally inserted in the film. At first I thought you were mispronouncing John McCain. I saw it when I watched the movie. I was like, holy shit, that looks like John McClane from Die Hard. And I Googled it and sure as shit, they did it. They put him <laughs> in the movie. That's so For weird. what reason? I don't know. Because the director was 35 and he just has no... 
He just he's has a guy no in a, limits. He's a guy in a bloody tank top, like a bunch of other guys in a bloody tank top in the scene. I guess he thought he could slip it by. That is the most cocaine thing about this movie. <laughs> All right, I'm watching it right now. Oh, it was John McClane. Whoa. Right? Oh, that's sick. And you saw it in real time. I saw it in real time. I, I, I'm not sure whether I think that's unforgivable or whether I think that's like the one that's thing about the movie quality. I like. <laughs> I thought about making the review scale of one to five John McClane, but, <laughs> but it is not going to be that. You found something else. Yeah. Come on to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs. What did you think of the Pearl Harbor attack as... A set piece. We've waited almost an hour to get to that point in the film. It's finally visited upon us, and it is 40 minutes long. Like, this is what we came here to see. Like, it's amazing, and there's so many, like, totally stunning shots. Like, when, when you see, like, the deck of a ship heaving up, like, because the ship is exploding, but the flames haven't burst through it yet, that's amazing stuff. And I think the effects hold up, generally speaking. I do, it's, too. Uh, which is... Pretty fucking remarkable for a 2001 film. Yeah. Um, I th- I do think that, like everything else in this movie, it's too long. The way you shoot a scene like this is that every shot is very carefully planned. Like, there's a storyboard and probably even an animatic because, you know, you're mixing... You're mixing comps and CG and a- actual practical effects and... Um, and it's just like you're gonna need to you're gonna need to have a very specific plan going in. So watching it, I was very conscious of like the fact that like every time they just show something kind of exploding in an undifferentiated moment where the camera just cuts to an object that is exploding, like they very carefully planned that moment and I was like, all right, I think we get the point, you know, <laughs> at the 20 minute mark. I feel I feel like we get the point saying anything beyond that other than just kind of exalting in their skills, you know, as technical filmmakers and being able to do it. I was willing to exalt in their skill. I think if you're going to give us an hour of love triangle, you need to have some symmetry, some some corresponding <laughs> scene to that and I and I wonder if they just did the math on it and were like well if we if we gave you 60 minutes of Vaseline then we've got to give you 60 minutes of fire that would make a good album title for you it would 60 minutes of Vaseline 60 minutes of fire yeah that's a that's a double album (laughs) 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 I wanted to read you guys Uh, Roger Ebert's quote about this film because I thought it was so great Uh, he said Pearl Harbor is a two hour movie squeezed into three hours about how on December 7th 1941 the Japanese staged a surprise attack on an American love triangle (laughs) God I miss him (laughs) so good I agree with Ben that it that there's that it's too long but also a big part of the of the Pearl Harbor footage or Pearl Harbor scene is this giant set piece of the bow of 
what I think is the Oklahoma, maybe the Arizona. No, I think it's the Oklahoma. I, I think you're right. It's the Oklahoma. As the boat with its foredeck covered with sailors slowly, slowly rolls over on its side and upside down and hundreds and hundreds of sailors are trapped either under it or in it and they're all hanging from the rigging and they're, you know, one by one. Ah, splash, you know. No, splash. There's even a guy who turns to camera and says, I can't swim. <laughs> like, he's in the U.S. Navy. Like, one of the things they do is teach everybody how to swim. But, that was the most like direct sort of this is Michael Bay's Titanic. It's almost shot for shot a like poor duplication of of that of that extended sequence, the sinking of the Titanic sequence, where we get people falling. You know, there's that there's that crazy scene where a couple of guys are blown because he also has the advantage of having explosions in the scene. A couple of guys are blown. They fly through the air and they actually hit part of the superstructure of the boat. And you're like, wow, that was gratuitous. I mean, that was really just look what we can do. Yeah. But, but more, more than anything, this moment in history, the bombing of Pearl Harbor has been, um, Played and replayed in films like Torah, Torah, Torah does all of this um, way better. And there's historic footage of it, too, that we have to go on. We And a lot of movies will actually just put the mm-hmm. put those shots in the movie. And so it's like it, this movie is not afraid of having archival footage in it. Oh, is there archival footage in this? Yeah, they do a little bit of that. And there's the newsreel guy that's like that's like running around with them during the Pearl Harbor scene. You know, he's got his little Bolex or whatever camera that is. He's shooting the zeros coming in overhead. Shooting a bunch of shots that that no one ever shot that aren't that aren't part of the story of Pearl Harbor. <laughs> he's just like, oh, and then he gets killed and the camera is just filming his like dead eyed face for until the battery runs out. Yeah. <laughs> or until the until the, the 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 key where he wound it is but 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 as a payoff, the war scenes, um, like there's just not anything new added to the filmic record of people trying to trying to give us some sense of what happened on December seventh, right? Like why why are you making this movie? Why do you reshoot? the bombing of Pearl Harbor. You're trying to add something. You're trying to give us some glimpse of what happened there, what happened to the sailors, what 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 took place. Why why would you why would you build all those sets? Why would you blow up all those men unless you were trying to take us somewhere and tell us something new about it? Because there's uh, if you want to watch the bombing of Pearl Harbor, you have 100 choices. And so to watch it all go down and just see it as like, well, here's my, like not even my take on it. Here's just my chance or my, this is my turn to, uh, to reenact this big dramatic event at somewhere in like, it's dead inside its heart. There's no, you don't come out of it with anything other than, um, that, that because the movie's called Pearl Harbor, because he chose to set it there, he's got to give us this, and he's excited to give us this. That argument about the choices he's making is so 
interesting because like this is a film that depicts those Japanese planes strafing sailors in the water, which didn't happen. Well, an incredible which depicts the fighters attacking hospitals, which didn't happen, but will not go so far as to use a racial slur against the Japanese ever. The worst thing that we hear out of an American GI's mouth is Jap sucker. Yeah. Well, and also the, the, the zeros are incredibly accurate when they are ground strafing. Like every time there are 50 people running across uh, some open ground, yeah. 40 of them are killed with hyper ac- uh, accurate machine gun fire. And yet when Ben Affleck and his pal take to the skies, suddenly the zeros are incapable of landing a single bullet. <laughs> on those P-40 Tomahawks. Like, no, no, I mean, there are five of them behind Ben Affleck, all just not a bullet lands because somehow he can fly between the bullets. Yeah. And those two, Affleck and his partner, what's the guy's name? Josh Hartnett? No, the other guy. Rafe and Danny. Danny. The two of them up in those planes, those are actually, there actually were two guys that did exactly what they did. Flew out to a, to a base that was out on the other side of the island, ra- you know, got two planes in the air and actually shot down some zeros. No, quite a few that that day. That is a fun movie. Like those two guys. Just that story. Like like without all the periphery, without the love triangle, like you could sell that movie. Yeah. And they they were in Hawaiian shirts, they jumped in their convertible and drove like hell yeah. across the island and got in these planes and they didn't have enough bullets. And they just got up there and fought. And their names were Ken Taylor and George Welch, these two guys. And they're, again, like two actual people. Now, for the purposes of this movie, we had to we had to let Affleck get that. And it's not that that's offensive. It's just like, as you've said repeatedly, it's a three-hour movie. And yet, uh, except for the, like, the four guys that we know by name, we don't know anybody. We don't, I mean, people are getting killed right and left and it's just like, meh, the nurses are all running around screaming. Can you explain, and this is a question for you guys, can you explain why all the scenes in the hospital during the battle are filmed in that, I mean, there's literally Vaseline on the lens. They're, it's I, to get a PG-13 rating instead of an R. What? They just... Because of the blood? Yeah. No. Uh, Michael Bay wanted a hard R, like he was intending for this to be an R-rated film. With blood splurting all over. Yeah. And the, because uh, it's a Disney-produced film, they, they That objected. was their choice. Yeah. They just put they put tape over the sides they of the They shot it camera. like a zombie film. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I wondered if they, they were, like, tilt-shifting the lens or something. Because, yeah, yeah like, like, they can only ever focus on something that isn't bleeding. And, it almost uh, looked like an a an anamorphic lens mounted vertically, Ben, because all the, the oh, light yeah. streaks are vertical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tilt shifting is is what it felt like, but but with actual with actual smear on the lens. Yeah, and not yeah, like, like blood smear or splatter, but just like yeah, like oh, this is all a dream is what it looks like. Right, and. I think that undercuts the impact of it. Also, like the fact that, like when the the horde of injured sailors shows up, they've been smeared with like tar or oil mm-hmm. or something. Like they're not they're not bloody. They're they're just like 
covered in black grease. Well, and they stagger like zombies. They really yeah. do with that with those with the lens treatment as it is. They come out like oh, oh brains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good look. Grab Jennifer Garner and bite her, and then so, slowly she turns. I, I, I that was before I knew Bruce Willis was in the movie, right? <laughs> it's risky, but it's bold. I want to dunk on this movie even harder than we're doing. <laughs> I feel like I'm standing in the key, taking the charge, like every time. I mean, I don't want to dunk on you, Adam, because I don't think you liked this movie either. But this is the first time that I ever, I mean, I, Adam, you in particular, and I think, Ben, you've said it too, that sometimes you watch these movies in stages. Yeah, I, I watched this in uh, in three stages. I, uh, I watched the first hour and just had to kind of like take a take a break make myself some lunch, watched the second hour, put, you know, paused it and took the dog for a walk and had a glass of water and then, and then finished it off. It was, it was not easy for me to, to, to sit through this. Is that second hour a pork chop hour? Yeah, I did eat uh, a pork chop during the second hour. <laughs> but I, usually I watch the movie all the way through start to finish, but this movie I had to take eight separate breaks <laughs> and and they were eight breaks not because i wanted to go downstairs and get a piece of cake i was driven out of the film like i was being like i was being whipped um <laughs> i'd driven driven downstairs to have a piece of cake to just to like give myself something to live for this is the first time we've ever watched a movie where i like was so disengaged from a scene that I had that I opened my texts and were reading texts <laughs> with one eye on the screen to make sure nothing interesting happened, but also like, hey, what's up, you guys? You know, see you tomorrow or whatever. Like it was, it was that appalling. You know, Uxbridge Shimoda has a strict no phones policy while watching a film. John, I, I think do too. We're gonna have to reprimand you. I have, I have, a, you know, like I'm somebody that sits and with a bowl of popcorn, right. and watches these movies all the way through. And this this movie like kept kept throwing its drink in my face. But except nobody in the movie even shows that much emotion. There's not even a moment where somebody throws a drink in someone's face. Um, it just put, it just pushed me out so that I had to go downstairs and like put some Brill cream in my hair because I'm the only person in the whole film that has Brill cream in his hair. I had to, <laughs> I had to start smoking again just to like add some, some cigarettes to this movie. I, I, I went and screamed some racial slurs off the back of the, my porch just to, <laughs> just to get them in the film. <laughs> John, John John shot some footage of himself saying racial slurs and then edited them into the film. <laughs> right wanna, next to Bruce Willis. If you want to hear what those are, stick around to after the credits. <laughs> so this is the this is the first time I couldn't not only couldn't make it all the way through a movie, but like languished. I mean, I I rude it until I realized that by by taking all those breaks. I had taken this three-hour movie and made it five hours long. And then I was like, what are you doing? You're prolonging your agony. Yeah. Lazy people always work harder, as my mother always says. Three boys do the work of one half of a boy, <laughs> as Dr. Horning used to say. 
One of the acts that could have been its own film is that Doolittle raid. And it's interesting that this film chose to depict that in montage almost. Like we get montage of the prep. That's really interesting stuff. That might have been my favorite part of the movie. And this is something that Michael Bay does a lot in his films. He does that like getting ready montage, that prep or training thing. And I think that's a pretty well done scene in this film, them trying to get those B-25s to take off on a short runway, the frustration of that, the losing of the weight in the planes. I wish they'd made more of that because I'm sure that that's all like, I mean, they they talk about taking out the armor, but you know, taking, taking stuff out of a plane usually means taking safety stuff out of a plane. They actually did put broomsticks in place of machine guns. That's historically yeah. true. Yeah, I wanted more of this, and instead they they cut it down for time. <laughs> like, cool choice. <laughs> well, and what's 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 crazy about that is that the Doolittle raid is so underrepresented in film. Yeah, we never get to see that adventure. That is that is really fun. It's 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 That's fun a half to be an there. hour in this film, and it should be. It should be more, because that's a really interesting story. Yeah, that's the movie. And then the Doolittle Little Raiders, like, against all odds, for the most part, made it to China, and most of them got out. Most of them made it out. Now, what they don't show in this movie at all is the Japanese were so furious that they, um, that they executed reprisals against the Chinese some say killing as many as 250,000 Chinese in, um, in reprisal for the third, you know, or whatever, the, the 60 Americans that, that got out. Um, that, is, that appears nowhere in the movie. Instead, there's some completely dumb, like, on-the-ground battle scene, which didn't happen at all. Wow, I, I read 10,000 Chinese were killed in the reprisal. 250 is a big jump on that. It is. I mean, 10,000 sort of directly, but but the um, during that era in China, the Japanese were just murdering people yeah. by, the, by the score. And I don't remember where I read that statistic, but, but I think that's, you know, maybe if you tie every single person that they killed during that immediate aftermath. Wow. There should be no omissions in a three-hour film. Like, that should be a part of it. It should right. be a title card at the end. Instead, we give the gavel to the Evelyn character to take us home. And that is another part I want to talk about, which is why is she the voice of the conclusion of the film? That's the first voiceover we hear in the entire movie. Right. And all of a sudden she's like, and then there was a war. Yeah. And, and then we won and God bless America. I mean, it's, it's, it's so jarring as a like, huh? Why wasn't it John Voight? Jiminy Glick, you mean? Yeah. Like, like <laughs> any, anyone, confused I for think, a second there. <laughs> anyone would have had Roosevelt? More, more credibility or gravitas or something to take us home at the end of the film and to conclude it. I thought it was a bizarre choice. Again, like not, uh, not Kate Beckinsale's fault, like. She delivered the lines as read, but I don't understand making her that bookend. Well, we should we should say that of uh, you know what we f- have experienced in watching all these war movies is that there's a traditionally a like a dearth of 
female characters. We almost never get a female perspective. Uh, we, we see a lot of times that women are, you know, completely tangential or they come in, they're a nurse or something. We see them for a second. Every once in a while we get lucky and we get a movie where they're credible female characters. In this movie, we're given a lot of time with the women where they, where they establish their own friendships. We get to see some depth of characterization, although not much. Um, we, we get we get trope women, right? Yeah, it's it's corny Hollywood women. Not yeah, the uptight one and the body one and the 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 hayseed. The uh, the one with glasses that if she took her glasses off, we'd all be like, oh my god, she was beautiful the whole time. She we, no, we never know realized how beautiful she is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and they do, and they you know they they get a lot of action, although we never really we never really dig down on anybody. Again, from here to eternity does such an incredible job of showing us these same people. But, um, I mean, every one of them, every one of those women is universally beautiful except the one token one that is slightly unbeautiful and still, like, completely, like, beautiful. (laughs) You'd still turn your head if you saw her on the street. Yeah, right. I mean, but she's she's the one. She's just not, like, Kate Beckinsale- She's not personally Kate Beckinsale. Yeah, she w- she weighs slightly more than 102 pounds. Um, <laughs> and none of them have really period-appropriate haircuts. You know, we don't get any of that 40s. I mean, one of the great things about women in the 1940s is those, as they dressed like so distinctively, so crazy with the big hair and the wide shoulders and and we don't get it. We don't get the gratification of any of that. They just oh, have... speaking of women in the forties, I have another moment of pedantry for you guys. Oh, thank God! Most of the women in the film do not wear stockings of any type, let alone the seamed nylon stockings that were hugely popular at the time. Before the U.S. entered the war and nylon was rationed, virtually every woman wore nylon stockings. During the nylon rationing, some women actually painted seams on their legs to simulate stockings. After the war ended. They went back on sale. There were numerous reports of women rioting in department stores to get a pair of nylons. We see one scene where, in the absence of a tourniquet, one of the characters pulls her nylons off and uses, and is like, here you go. Here you go, doctor. But you're absolutely right. At no other point do we see, I mean, nylons were so fetishized. I think in the parachute makeout, when Kate Beckinsale's on her back and they like pan luridly up her body i feel like you see stockings and and like the like little garter clips oh do you feel like that or do you know that for sure because you rewound it and watched that scene (laughs) 16 times i feel like i recall seeing that if you would like me to elongate the statement (laughs) is that what you're going to elongate yeah the Mm -hmm. statement that scene with the parachutes uh was super beautiful yeah um, extremely romantic, completely belongs in a in a different film somehow. Um, that was something I'm sure someone came up with and they were like, oh, that's wonderful. Let's put it in this movie. It has nothing to do with this movie. And we don't even really get anything. I mean, they don't do anything beautiful in there. But it made me want to find a warehouse, fill it full of parachutes, yeah. and then like happen to take a date there. Oh, look. Well, for all of the movies we've seen where there's like shimmering curtains and people fucking amidst them, like 
the curtains are almost never believable. It's like, who has curtains like that? Suddenly, we've got the curtains, and they're, they're established in a way that actually makes sense. And yet, too much, like too beautiful, too too fast, too furious. <laughs> Pearl Harbor, we have the curtains. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Ving Rhames? Uh-huh. That, that's my Ving Rhames. <laughs> It's as good as John's Christopher Walken. (laughs) (laughs) So if any of our listeners uh, turned it off before the end, this Doolittle raid ends with uh, the B-25s getting ditched in some rice patties and Danny getting cut down in a hail of gunfire. While wearing an ox yoke. Yeah. Which is, again, like pretty weird choice. Why did they run in there with that ox yoke? Like, that, was that just lying there, or was this something they'd been dragging? <laughs> a plane went down over there. Quick, grab the ox yoke and some guns. <laughs> I mean, it's Randall Wallace, so I imagine this was a crucifixion oh, situation. of course. And a shortcut to, like, platoon. Right, because right? he, he gets shot in the back and gets a dramatic death fall. Yeah. I think this, this, the setup here where his wife is pregnant, or his, his gal is pregnant, he doesn't know. She doesn't want him to know. And then he gets killed in battle and is told at the last minute, you're going to be a father. All of that felt, I mean, although it was really tugging, it was meant to tug at our heartstrings, it also felt real. Like, I feel like that happened maybe not infrequently. A lot of kids were born in 1943 and 44 whose fathers were had already been killed in the war. Right. So I didn't object to that storyline. It did not occur to me that that was a crucifixion scene and a platoon scene. Um, it just, it just. I was still reeling from I'm the fact that none of this happened. Looking for crucifixions, though. That's I, just what I do. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but like, Ben Affleck ends up with her in the end, and spends the rest of his life raising the child that is a product of the the central betrayal of the first half of the movie. You get the feeling from the look on his face as he interacts with the kid in soft focus at the end of the movie that he's still bitter about it. (laughs) That like he's, he always knows for the rest of his life. He knows that he was her second choice. And now he has the son of his, like he is the ultimate cuck at the end of the movie. And you can just see it's like for the rest of his life because there's no there's no there's no second child in that shot. It's not like he came back and they had a child together, somewhat repairing the damage. That's rough. Maybe there's something there though. Like if uh, right wing crazies want to call liberals cucks all the time, maybe they doth protest too much. Oh. Maybe maybe, uh, maybe Randall Wallace is like. Uh, revealing some deeply seated psychological thing about himself. You're seeing, saying Randall Wallace is insecure about the fatherhood of his children? Yeah. Yeah. He's like, my son looks like the mailman. <laughs> Get the ammo for that 50 cow! Get that 50 cow! Well, this movie is a dog. Yeah. And it's a sopping wet dog. Here's another weird uh, moment of pedantry in that in that award scene at the end. Uh, Dory Miller is get, getting a Navy Cross from uh, somebody that is wearing commander rank outfit. 
but he was actually given that by Admiral Nimitz, in like historically. So, and they had they had a dad from the San Fernando Valley playing Nimitz in this movie. They could have just shot that scene with him. Shoot it with Nimitz. I have a subscription to San Fernando Valley Dad magazine. <laughs> it's a nudist magazine, right? It, it gives me current on the, on the club meetings uh-huh. and such. I sort of wondered if they cast that guy just to make it believable that somebody would have to explain to Admiral Nimitz what naval intelligence does. Oh, is it the same guy? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know anything about Dory Miller before reading about him after seeing the film. And I was like, oh, wonder what he's up to. He died a couple years later. Yeah. He died in the war. Yeah. They put him back on a boat. Not only put him back on a boat, but as the cook. Like that didn't is so even fucked. didn't even give him a gun cuz it was a segregated navy. Yeah. Um and he was he was put up for the medal of honor. They said we can't give a medal of honor to a black guy. Then it was like, well, let's give him the distinguished service cross. Well, let's give him the navy cross. Like kind of third rung down. Man. But the uh but the the, the two pilots that, that hopped in those P-40s got Distinguished Service Cross, and sure. Ben Affleck gets one of those in the medal pinning ceremony. Yeah. And then Chewbacca gets a medal around his neck. <laughs> Chewbacca <laughs> never got a medal, Joe. Oh, Chewbacca didn't get a medal. That's right. So they're just as racist in uh, in Star Wars as they are. <laughs> we as know they are in the Navy. <laughs> Look, in Wookiee in, in culture... Uh, well, you don't want it to get tangled in your bandolier. Well, that, and, and also, like, it would identify... It would mark him as an Uncle Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, I heard the Wookiees tied all of their medals on the bombs that they dropped on uh, Coruscant <laughs> in retribution for the invasion. <laughs> That was pretty. That was pretty good. I mean, that's another example of like how the Doolittle raid was the best part of the movie. He actually did that. Tied medals to, that the Japanese had given American the friendship soldiers, medals. Yeah, and we're like tied them to the bombs. That's so good. Do you think that there was any evidence of that? No, no, it happened. No, I mean, actually, like, like when the Japanese were like sifting through the rubbles, did they find oh. those medals, or wouldn't they have just been? melted the instant the bomb went off i don't know it's funny can you imagine there's a hole somewhere in uh in tokyo at seven feet down where there's the there's this friendship metal all yeah. banged up <laughs> <laughs> i saw on the internet the other day a guy was uh building something with french oak and uh in cutting one of his boards in half he discovered that he had made a cross-section on a bullet that had hit that tree during one of the world wars wow and uh it's just like you could see like the trail where the bullet had entered the trunk of the tree it's amazing to think that that like you know like somebody might like dig something up someday and be like what's this melted metal (laughs) so great you know there's a whole like subsection of the german civil or the german like i guess what you would call like the the guys that fix the sewers uh-huh. that are just bomb disposal people. There are enough bombs still buried in the ground in Germany that every time you go digging to replace a pipe or or improve a roadway, you have to be very conscious of the fact that you might come upon a 5,000-pound bomb that hasn't detonated. Call before you dig, huh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the uh, French equivalent of like the National Geologic Survey is is 
does that. Oh as come well. on, Ben! Give us that name in French. I don't know what it's called. Le survey <laughs> géologique. Well, it's, not, it's, it's not géologique because it's. Uh, it was. I mean, it, like it was a division that was originally created in the French government to make really good maps for artillery, mm. like so that you know like how tall hills are, so you can lob things over them. Anyways. <laughs> What did you think of Alec Baldwin in this movie as Doolittle? I think Alec Baldwin was playing Jack Dorsey from 30 Rock throughout the movie. Oh. He's just Jack Dorseying right and left. <laughs> and this is post. He's like, Rafe, we got to find you a girlfriend. A, a young Tina Fey is like <laughs> improvising somewhere in Chicago and is like, just going to put that in the, put that in my back pocket. <laughs> You know, 50 is 32 in women years. <laughs> um, this is post-Red October. So Alec Baldwin has lost that young shimmer that he had and has become this stolid 40-year-old who's giving these gravelly-voiced line readings. Um, he I lost baby fat and then got it back. And got it back, right, <laughs> in the form of something else, right? Yeah. He, he packed in some where had been baby fat now was Crisco um, but I think from this movie on he just does the same job in every movie but I totally believed Alec Baldwin as the as the character of Jimmy Doolittle in a film yeah that was this film that we're talking about the the watchable movie somewhere underneath the somewhere inside the tauntaun of this like somewhere inside the steaming tauntaun of this movie there is i don't know what uh like a bag of gold shirt idea <laughs> you gotta you gotta cut open tauntaun and inside is a pork chop yeah inside there's some hobbit gold <laughs> friendly <right>? fire <laughs> Our shirt ideas get worse and worse. Yeah. yeah nobody's going to wear that. <laughs> the Jimmy Doolittle, Alec Baldwin movie, I would be first in line for that movie. Yep, yep, I would watch that. I mean, he couldn't make it now because he, he's with, 60. With Affleck and Hartnett in it also. Like, I would see it as cast. I think that'd be fun. Give me a 90-minute film, on, like, with 30 minutes of it, that training scene, then the bombing, and then the ditch... That's a three act. We can make that movie. What is the movie that we would make now with those three actors? Affleck, Hartnett, and... Um, Baldwin? Baldwin in their present configurations. What is the movie? I mean, I guess it's just Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, but Baldwin is now Gene the Machine. <laughs> I think I would watch that. <laughs> Al Pacino, yeah, make the cameo. Yeah. Maybe Pacino in the Baldwin role. You see this watch? <laughs> Get away from the coffee. Coffee. For closes. I think I would watch an Irish gangster movie. Oh, right? that'd be fun. Like a made-up Boston Irish gangster movie starring those three? I think uh, Ben Affleck did that a couple of times, yeah. right? He did, didn't he? Yeah, and Baldwin was in it. He if was? I, if I recall. You're thinking of The Departed? I'm the thinking Departed. of The Town. Oh, The Town. That was right. a good movie. The Town, I feel like I liked in the theater, and then I watched it again on home video and found it to be terribly flat and not fun to watch. 
There's also that scene where they like break into the guy's apartment to beat him up and they're playing some like really rugged rap song that hmm. they I guess didn't get the rights for home video, so that scene just doesn't have music in it. Oh. oh, I thought you were going to say they put Dan Fogelberg in. <laughs> really ruined it. Longer than been fishes in the ocean. Well, just to reiterate, I don't want this movie. I apologize to everyone that listens to this show that felt like uh, in order to be a completist, they had to watch this movie. But I'm conscious of there being someone out there who watched this movie and loved it and came into this pod afraid that we were going to not like it or came into it. Did I just say pod? Oh my God, you guys have gotten to me. You've gotten to me with your dumb lexicon. That came to listen to our podcast. And uh, and are I mean, like oh. you spell podcast with a space in between the word pod and cast. So it's I do. not like it's <laughs> it's not like there's that big a leap for it to just be pod. Podi podcasty. <laughs> ye oldie podcasty. podcasty. <laughs> and to that person, I do not I do not know what to say except that I understand there is a style of watching movies that asks very little of the movie. And if you don't, if you don't ask anything of the movie, if you take the movie as received or, you know, like you sit and w- watch it passively. If you're looking for a collection of beautiful images of explosions and the occasional lady in a bikini having a smooch with a handsome gentleman, like it's got that. Yeah, it does. There are a lot of, there are a lot of very chaste, handsome smooches. Um, <laughs> I mean, everyone is so beautiful and all the shots are so beautiful that just strictly from like, is this beauty? Am I watching something beautiful from shot to shot? You certainly get that. There is enough high adventure throughout the movie that your heart races a little. Oh, you are admitting to be to being affected a little bit. The thing is, when someone is hanging from the edge of a of a sinking ship and the and the water is on fire, I, like, my fists clench um, in anticipation of, like, that scene where the where they cut through the, the hull of the ship, but all they do is let the air out, and then we, we see the, the hands of these sailors struggling to get up to the hole, and then they all drown, and all we see is their hands go lifeless. That's just basic physics, guys. Don't cut through the top of that c- compartment. That's not where you want the the hole. Well, I've said a few said that That's a few times said. in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're inspired to also use our worst tropes just in <laughs> reviewing this film. Guys, it's the part of the pod where I come up with a custom rating system for the film we've just watched. For Pearl Harbor, there is a scene that is maybe the most emblematic of this idea. The idea of like adding something where that thing is not necessary to add. This is a thing that we see throughout this film. There's the thing that we should get, and then there's all the extra shit that we don't want, whether we're talking about the story or a visual or a line of dialogue. And that scene where Affleck's Spitfire gets shot down over the English Channel, it's like, I want to say it's maybe 40 minutes into the film. It fall- and, and let me, I'm sorry to interrupt. The Battle of Britain scenes, his fighter scenes 
over the English Channel are actually great. They're filmed great. The the CGI is great. That is totally exciting. And yeah. I would watch Ben Affleck fight BF 109s totally all afternoon. It's so great. I forgot. I forgot that that was one that that was a, a set that I was like, yeah, all right. It was great. So Affleck, he can't save his plane. He's got oil shooting in his face. He ditches. He uh, he sullies it into the channel, and we cut from below the waterline where we see the the aircraft plunge to above the waterline where we see the aircraft plunge and then from frame right sparks shoot forward at the plane really unnecessary sparks really are happening in the water back and to the left (laughs) (laughs) this idea of just like just add it, man. Yeah. Just just make it look cool. Make it look cool is what Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor is. It sparks as an airplane ditches into the water, sparks coming from out of frame. I'm giving this film a rating of between one and five sparks. <laughs> I will begin my comment with this question. If Paul Verhoeven had directed this film instead of Michael Bay, <laughs> would you think it was satire? <laughs> that would be the retroactive claim, right? There would be so many boobs. That's the, <laughs> that's the only thing that keeps this from being a Michael Bay film is there are no naked boobs. He would find a reason for there to be a locker room scene. There's nary a pube dying shot. Right, nobody's dying their pubes. Nobody is like, like incidentally, in, incidentally and carelessly nude. <laughs> because of how strange the tone is, I had that question. Second question: If this film had Tom Hanks in it, would it be a credible Steven Spielberg film? Because no. I, I also feel like its saccharineness made it feel like all of the worst parts of Saving Private Ryan. Also has Tom Sizemore. These are tone issues that I have with it. These are these are where those questions come from. No, I think Spielberg would do a Spielberg would do a better job in editing. Right? There's a there is a catastrophe of editing here. Spielberg would have known where his story was at least. You know what I mean? Like he would have he would have had a a a take that ran throughout the film and it wouldn't have been like just five music videos that were each 45 minutes long piled on top of each other like a or stuffed inside each other like a turducken (laughs) I like where you place the emphasis on that word (laughs) it is a turducken Tom Hanks could have been a Doolittle though I would have I'd I'd watch a Doolittle movie with Tom Hanks from 20 years ago this issue with tone is something that pervades the film and yet I got the chills every time I was supposed to get them, like a good Michael Bay movie viewer, like getting patted on the head, like, here's your chill scene. There you go. The aircraft scenes are spectacular. Some of the compositions we see in this film hold up as like best of breed compositions. The torpedoes churning below, the torpedoes cruising below the churning legs, the buckling of the ships as they're hit. The hangar explosions, 
are amazing. No one blows up a hangar as good as a Michael Bay film. He does it in Bad Boys films. He he fucking hates hangers. Blow them all up. I think he uh, I think he paid his own part of his own salary in one of the Bad Boys films to blow up a hangar. And die those hangers do spectacularly. <laughs> that scene, John, that you mentioned about uh, the the topside sailors holding the hands of the of those that are coming through the the exposed hole is totally affecting the Doolittle raid scene that we wish there was more of. Like we've made this point up until now, and I'll make it again. There there are probably several good movies inside of this one bad movie. And I wish we got the chance to see those. This film is not the actor's fault. I would argue this film isn't even totally Michael Bay's fault, but it is Randall Wallace's fault. (laughs) This is an unforgivable piece of work by Randall Wallace, but I cannot give this film only one spark because of how hard so many people work to do this. Like there's a lot of good here. This is a two-spark film. That's pretty charitable, Adam. <laughs> um, I think my take is kind of the opposite. Like, I agree with you about the spectacularness of many of the special effects. I agree that a lot of the a lot of the problems with the acting are not because of the actors, but because of the things they're being asked to say and do. But, like, all of the bad parts make this film unwatchable, slow, boring dreck that I couldn't watch in one sitting. And all of the good parts just make me angry that they were wasted on a film this bad. Like, Well put. Uh, I can't grant extra sparks. Because I don't feel anger like a normal person. I wish I could feel the way you did. Like <laughs> your, your comments here are spot on. I think it's a half a spark movie at Ooh. best. Wow. It's like a spark that is like entering the ocean from an unseen off-camera source <laughs> that hasn't totally gone extinguished and the plane is is sinking in soft focus in the background and this this spark we've captured the frame of film where this extra gratuitous spark makes its first contact with the cold waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Ben, I hear your review after like taking my limbo stick and putting it down like almost <laughs> to the floor. And I'm looking at John and he's like taking off his shoes and like stretching his ankles and like and like cracking his back. I I, I feel like he's gonna go even lower. John, how many sparks do you give Pearl Harbor and why? I agree with Ben in in every respect. But all I could think about in in watching the movie is the colossal waste of resources that went into this. This is <laughs> this, not only this film cost as much to make and promote as was the dollar value of material lost in the actual attack on Pearl Harbor. I actually looked for that statistic. I really did. I went and said, <laughs> "How much did Pearl Harbor cost the United States?" trying to figure out how the two could be compared, even accounting for inflation. Yeah. And I think Pearl Harbor actually cost more, and just because you can't put a value on human lives. Um, although we don't know how many people this movie killed. Um, 
in theaters. It could have killed up to 3,000 people. And just no one ever uh, made the connection. Why doesn't anyone talk about that? You know, a person, if a person died in every theater that this film showed in, it would equal the deaths. Um, but the, col- the, colossal, the colossal hubris of having a 35-year-old direct an epic film about Pearl Harbor where he had no business doing it. Um, I mean, I don't want to see the Clint Eastwood directed film about Pearl Harbor either, but $150 million got spent making this, and it was popular. At least Clint Eastwood is going to show people fuck. And he's going to have racial slurs in (laughs) it, and there's going to be cigarettes. (laughs) Right. Clint, they they didn't even say that racial slur. I know it's artistic license. It's important it to me. <laughs> um, like to think that Michael Bay would be given the opportunity to respond to James Cameron in some kind of pissing contest about who can make a you know like a more bloated film and and the three hour running time, the Vaseline lensed romance shoehorned into uh, like a, a an epic real life disaster. But I just kept feeling like money is pouring out on the ground. Every time he blew up a hangar, every single bit of this movie was a was just a waste of human resource. We could have beaten these swords into plowshares. Like <laughs> that that money could have gone to feed little children. I don't care, you know? If you had just spent this money on uh, like supporting younger filmmakers, just give every young filmmaker 1500 bucks, you know? You would have contributed more to the culture. And the fact that this was some epic summer picture that everybody went to and and like soaked up is like there are they sell an awful lot of fago too. You know what I mean? Like it it has no bearing on like the the usefulness, the utility and validity of this movie. So I give it also one half of a spark which is in the process of being extinguished by a stream of piss. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's brutal. <laughs> and that is with all the greatness of this movie taken into consideration. Yeah. It is yeah. all the greatness of this movie is obliterated by the uselessness of it. Well, there's one aspect of our show that even with a bad film, I think fills us with a little bit of joy, right? It's the selection of a guy. John, tell me you had a guy at least. You only had a half a star. You can't choose any half guys. A whole guy is required. <laughs> Who's your guy? My guy is the like blonde bohunky dude who maybe we've met him before. Maybe we met him a hundred times in this movie, but he stood out not at all hmm? at any point other than during the strafing of the of the airbase. He suddenly steps to the fore and says, come with me. He takes over a, a pillbox. He grabs a 50 caliber. He's like, load the gun, come on. And he's like heroically firing that 50 caliber at the zeros. And you're like, who's this guy? What movie is he in? Where did he come from? I care about him. And then he's the one where the bomb, the bomb like bounces off the tarmac, lands next to a suspiciously 
located propane tank and then the little propeller at the end, which is like some kind of like some sort of timer trigger. Clockwork timer. It's just like and he stands up and he goes, you guys, it was a dud. And then immediately one of the biggest explosions in the movie, just like obliterates him. He had one minute on screen and he was treated by the film like he was a, a character we'd known all along. Like this is <laughs> this is when Polly gets it or whatever. And Who he's, grieves for Billy? Yeah, and he's also beautiful, like yeah. corn-fed farm boy. Yeah. And yet, I don't know whether the scenes that, that introduced him to us ended up on the cutting room floor. Maybe he had a big scene in one of those in one of those romance scenes where I was actually looking at my text because I couldn't bear it. But I don't think so. I think he just appeared, was the star of the movie for one and a half minutes and then vaporized. <laughs> well, if you had any money on John choosing the Tom Sizemore character in the film, <laughs> go ahead and tear up your tickets. Those <laughs> are not going to pay. The problem is one time I was in a hotel room and was flipping through the channels and came upon Celebrity Rehab Season 3. Oh, no. And watched an episode where Tom Sizemore was having a big baby diaper attack about Heidi Fleiss in this celebrity <laughs> rehab thing. Oof. And I was like, this guy is awful, even though I love him in every movie because he's always yeah. chomping on a cigar. I can no longer pick him as my guy. Fair enough. Wow. Uh, well, my guy is uh, also a very brief character in this film. The... Um, the uh, the carrier group is heading, is steaming toward Japan, and they uh, discover that a patrol boat is 400 yards away from them suddenly. Uh, <laughs> Rut row. But, you know, there's there's a bunch of chaos on the ship, and the captain says, like, go to general quarters. And, uh, and then we cut to below decks, and there's a guy that is, like, yanking his pants up after... Uh, or, or, or like mid poop, having to having to leave the the bathroom because oh, they're going to general quarters. I remember that guy, and uh, I just feel like that's uh, if I was ever in a situation where I had to go to general quarters, I'm I'm sure I would be taking the most luxuriant dump <laughs> of my life, and then it would be ruined. So I felt really bad for that guy, and also just like what happens? Like you don't, you know, like does he just pinch it off and and hope that he doesn't finish the job accidentally when the bombs start raining down on them. I mean, you, you can never know how tight a sphincter a guy has. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Not by looking at him now. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. He could have one of those sphincters that just pinches it off, dry yeah. as a bone. You Gets don't want to die with full bowels, that's for sure. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Uh -huh. That's one of the first things that happened when you die, right? Maybe that's the propaganda poster for Friendly Fire. <laughs> don't die with full bowels listen to the friendly fire podcast full bowels move trowels um, well that was my that's my guy just uh, fully identified with that young man and his plight good guy what about you Adam you see my guy during the scene right after Rafe and Danny take to the skies in their P40s and they're uh, they've gone back to the fleet and are zooming in between ships, flying directly overhead, all of the sailors in the water. One of the sailors looks up and after seeing 
uh, Danny and Ray fly by, points up with his non-swimming hand, and he's like, P-40s! <laughs> <laughs> that could only be my guy. Like, I am the guy in the water, still plain nerding out. Just like, like-, <laughs> like, my ship has been destroyed, it's capsized, it's thrown me overboard, I'm treading water and tiring. I'm about to die, and yet... Are those, those are P4, those Look, sound like P40s. Yeah. Do you think they are? And then they zoom overhead. He's like, guys, P40s. <laughs> and then you text me, hey, there are two P40s yeah. at Boeing Field. <laughs> I love that guy. <laughs> we never know his fate, but uh, if, he, if he didn't make it, he had one last good play nerd. He nerded out in that scene, and that's why he's my guy. I wondered in the, like, all of the zeros, like, coming in, Everybody's going like, oh, whoa! They must be running an exercise. Wouldn't it, wouldn't they have sounded different? Like, wouldn't people know that they were weird planes? Wasn't this the first time the zero had ever been encountered by Americans? Yes, yes, and yes, and yet it was such a surprise that no. I mean, I think there really was a lot of that, like standing there watching them go by and thinking, "Huh, I wonder what that's all about." before it dawned on I mean I'm sure there were people that were like whoa and immediately started running for a gun but I think there were an awful lot of people that just sort of looked up and said weird Rafe is the only one in the film who knows anything about a zero because he instructs Danny he's like don't try to outrun him we got to use the buildings as cover right like how does he know that he was he was in the, he was in the opposite theater well and then he spends 20 minutes trying to outrun him yeah <laughs> yeah. you know? They actually crashed one of these zeros uh, during the filming. Some guy clipped a palm tree, put really? it down. He and lived though. He was he lived. Yeah, and these were real zeros, not uh, it, A6 it, it Texans. wasn't like Tora yeah. Tora Tora. They actually had the real deal. Impressivo. There's got to be a better film than this that we're watching next time, Ben. Yeah. Well, we already have audio of us selecting it and uh so we we uh kind of retroactively slotted this one in because we realized that the uh you know we couldn't release an episode on december 7th that wasn't about pearl harbor in some way so smart move by us we will now find out what we're watching next week john you want to roll that big old die roll it and uh see which of our many films we'll watch next how many films are on this list ben List is long. I've, it's longer than a hundred, but I mm. randomize it every time so that uh, you know there's a fair chance that uh, even things low on the list will come up. Only the um, best non-Sylvester Stallone films in that one hundred. I think there's some Stallones in here. I'm pretty sure there better be. Um, yeah, I've I've moved a few off because I I uh, occasionally will click around and see if I can find some of these movies on on streaming and if they're not i'm uh, i'm now moving them over to a a tab that we're keeping track of the ones that we would like to watch but just aren't that easy to get a copy of these those days. are the the movies we'll do for our college tour yeah they'll have it on laserdisc in the library you'll see us at a sparsely attended film studies class near you <laughs> but we'll get paid ten thousand dollars <laughs> <laughs> john is fingering the die. I've got my 100-sided die. Here we go. Ready? Good Foley. Oh, it's it's really rolling around. 
And it lands on... 74. 74 is a another Edward Zwick film. I think this might be his third film that we... When we arrive at a third Edward Zwick film, do we have to do no more Zwick films? <laughs> uh, well, they weren't consecutive, so I don't think this oh. violates any, any rules. This is from 1996, and it's about the Gulf War. It's Courage Under Fire. Another, Another Denzel, Denzel Zwick team-up. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and Meg uh, Ryan. Who, who put this on the, uh, on the movie? Uh, this is an Adam ad, according to the spreadsheet. Does this actually involve war, or is this them walking around Washington, um, <laughs> like talking lawyer talk? Oh yeah, isn't this the one where they're gonna give give a woman the Medal of Honor, but it's like controversial because woman? Yeah, I I thought maybe we might watch a film with a woman female character, and oh uh, I thought Don't. I might see if that <laughs> might sneak through your your filtration system. <laughs> There, there's that a reason. Woman, and also, female character. What does that even mean? Of the three of us, do not virtue signal to us. If you virtue <laughs> signal to Ben, you know what happens? It creates a black hole, and everything <laughs> dies. Oh no! I'll just well actually him. <laughs> After the siege, I wanted to see if Denzel Washington would keep eating oranges in a weird way. <laughs> oh yeah, throughout all his films, and I am very interested to know if he does that here. I bet you he. I bet you he eats cherry tomatoes by taking taking big juicy bites out of them. <laughs> yeah, Zwick has a cherry tomato thing too. Yeah, um, well, that's how Denzel demonstrates how evil he is in every movie. Uh, are you trying to veto, John? Is that a... Is, no, 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 no. I've never seen Courage Under Fire, so I have no way of, uh, I have no way of, of being able to tell. But looking at the poster, I see that Denzel is in a tie, and that suggests that this is a Washington drama. Yes. But I don't, I can't, I can, I'm not coming at that with any, any foreknowledge other than just seeing the tie which suggests that it's not like a combat movie but maybe there's like combat stuff in it this was the movie that matt damon got really skinny in right wasn't that this the movie that made that famous like the the idea of an actor getting super skinny oh uh i don't know if that counts as combat adam but uh. (laughs) it is to me as a skinny man well it's really interesting that uh uh, that Matt Damon is billed fourth after Lou Diamond Phillips. Yeah, early in his career. But above Bronson Pinchot. Well. <laughs> Scott Glenn. I love a Scott Glenn. All right, well, I think I think this is, uh, I mean, generally, if Adam puts it on the list, you can be assured that it's questionable whether it's a war movie or not. It's a... Uh, <laughs> An edge case in all <laughs> in all contexts when Adam it's <laughs> a movie. But I, as you know, I love a movie with a strong female lead. So. Edge case is a great call sign, and I accept it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> edge case and the littlest cornholio. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'm excited for it. And Adam, if you can successfully edge yourself until next week when we watch that, uh, you win a big prize. Oh, boy. I'll, uh, I'll do my best. Oh, and also I'd like to say to everybody listening uh, uh, that you should come visit our Facebook uh, fan group, Friendly oh. Fire on Facebook. Yeah. 
and uh, and there's a Reddit uh, that you could go talk there if you don't agree with Facebook. You're actually participating in both of those places. It's nice to see. I'm going to those places. I'm trying so hard not to argue with people there. I'm trying to just be like really friendly and say like, thanks for your support. Oh my God, I love your comments. You're, do- you're doing a great job. I mean, occasionally you will dunk on them on Roderick on the line, but... Uh... <laughs> well, the thing is, I try not to dunk on them, like, on Facebook, but every once in a while. I'm do you have any time for those sections of Reddit with all the time you spend on r slash divorce tennis <laughs> holes? <laughs> at at 4.30 in the morning, like, it's really tough to find good quality content to, to yeah. be upset about, and so I go on our Reddit sometimes. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, uh, with all that said, we'll let Rob take it from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte, And our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Our logo art, it's by Nick Dittmar. If you'd like to continue this conversation online, why don't you use the hashtag FriendlyFire? Or you can go discuss this show over on Facebook or Reddit. We've got plenty of spaces for everyone to talk there. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. You can leave us a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. That's very helpful. Or head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate to support the ongoing production of this show. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.